We begin our December Sunday series, Christmas on My Mind, with this Bible reading from Revelation chapter 7. The Apostle John is writing, he's describing a vision that God has shown him, and he writes this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Do you know the history of the Christmas tree? It, uh, it developed, I mean, it, there, there's some legend combined with some historical facts and figures as we piece it together. It pretty much is this. Uh, its origins developed about 600 years ago. And even before that time, evergreen trees were used in pagan rituals and celebrations and were even uh, uh, limbs from the tree or branches from evergreens, like we do with evergreen wreaths, right, were brought into homes during winter to give people hope that winter would end soon and that there would be springtime ahead and where things could live again. So that was happening much longer than, much earlier than 600 years ago. But it was about 600 years ago, uh, about 1400s, where the first documented use, actually, of an evergreen tree at Christmas, tra Christmas time is written in history. It happened in uh, Latvia and Estonia in the late 1400s, and local merchants brought a tree into the town square, and they set it up, and they decorated it, and they danced around it, and then they lit it on fire. Yeah, we don't do that on purpose much more today, but they did that back then. Some people say that was related more to the winter solstice, actually, than Christmas. But secular and religious historians, for the most part, agree on this. The first recorded use of a Christmas tree in history that was brought into a home and decorated in the home was by our friend Martin Luther. Legend has it that Luther was walking through the forest in the dark in winter, which they did in those days, 
and uh, he, looked, he looked like through the branches of this evergreen tree and the stars were shining, and it made Luther think very spiritual thoughts, like most things did for Martin Luther. He's a 16th century German preacher and prolific uh, author, writer, and even musician, and a very spiritual man, so it made him think of Jesus, and, and as Luther did often, he went back, he had to go tell his kids in the house, and so he brought a, a, a smaller Christmas tree into the home, and uh, he put candles on it. So maybe that perhaps might be the second time in history that a tree was set on fire. Uh, not, we don't know of it for sure, but uh, he put the candles on there to represent the stars, to put lights on the tree, and then he explained to his children, this tree reminds us of Jesus. He, Jesus is the light of the world, and the tree points to heaven, and and Jesus would eventually be crucified uh, on a tree, not a decorated one, but an undecorated one that would form the cross. And so Luther used that to teach his children and they, actually to teach all the, the, the church and all of Germany. And then it just became all the fad in Germany and Europe to have Christmas trees in your homes. Uh, the Germans started putting things on the tree like edible things like gingerbread and coated apples and uh, glass blowers and merchants uh, formed these glass concoctions that we know today as Christmas ornaments. So they put uh, glassware on the tree, and uh, someone probably got an idea, probably from Pinterest or somewhere, to put like uh, gold foil and colored paper on the tree, and that's, they used all these decorations, and that's where decorating Christmas trees started. Uh, and so here we are today. Uh, I, I visited one of your homes this week, and... Uh, and the person from our church, and that person is sitting here today, and you had a Christmas tree up, and, and there is a remote control for the tree. So now, you know, today we have artificial trees that are pre-lit, my favorite, and, uh, but this tree, this, I mean, this had it all going on. This tree was like a, a light show from Vegas. There is a remote control that you could push, and it would give one particular light show and push another option, and a different light show came up, right? Another button, a different light show. And not only that, but the tree was a jukebox. So you'd press a different button on the remote control, and music would start coming, like, from the tree. See, that's, that's where we are with Christmas trees today. I don't, I don't know what Martin Luther would say. He probably is missing all the fun back in those days. That's, that's trees. That's the origin of Christmas. So here's the bottom line for Christmas trees. Right? You see them everywhere during the Christmas season. All kinds of people, even non-Christians, even businesses, display Christmas trees. And, and they give a spirit of Christmas, so to speak, but, but Christians use dis Christmas trees and see them for three particular reasons that are unique to Christians. Number one, Christmas trees point to heaven. Christmas trees point to heaven. Number two, Christmas trees are evergreen, so they're always green. They remind us of everlasting life. And number three, Christmas trees remind us of Jesus, the light of the world. We have lights on the trees. Jesus was crucified on a tree on the cross. And so Christmas trees for Christians say something to us that they don't say to the rest of the world. All right, those three, those three are on a slide, Kara, on the next slide there. Okay, they're not... Uh, question for the kids. Kids, pay attention. How many of you like opening Christmas presents? Raise your hand. All right. 
Put your hands back down. Um, how many of you, your, your family, your mom or dad, put the Christmas presents under a Christmas tree? Raise your hand. All right. Good. Not as many. Hmm. I'm losing you already. Or you just don't do that. All right. Third, how many, how many of your families put the presents under the tree and they get the family in front of the tree and take a picture every year? Raise your hand. Yeah, the, yeah my family did the same thing. Um, presents under the tree, taking a picture. Uh, special plans, special times. Um, we, we do a lot with Christmas trees during Christmas. And they're special for kids. Like Christmas is special for a kid. You know why Christmas is special for kids? Here's the main reason. Kids at Christmas enjoy everything that Christmas gives without having to do anything to make it happen. That's why kids love Christmas, right? Mom and dad do the planning, the purchasing of gifts, the preparing of food, the present wrapping. They, mom and dad do it all, and then kids just show up and tear into presents and eat a lot of food and have off of school, right? Yeah, no wonder kids love Christmas. Kids love Christmas because it's not their responsibility. But yet they get to enjoy it. That's the message we heard in Revelation today about heaven. We all will enjoy heaven magnanimously someday when we'll be there. And why? Like, Chris, like kids in Christmas, heaven happens to us. It's not our responsibility, but we get to enjoy it happening. Heaven is the work of God. So today, the, the theme for the sermon, and that wraps up, wraps the theme around this, this section from Revelation, is we belong in heaven because heaven belongs to God. And I'm going to give you four reasons why we rejoice in that. Reason number one, heaven's people belong to God. Heaven's people belong to God. So this section of Revelation is a vision that God has given to the Apostle John, and there's a string of visions, and uh, this is in a vision that's the sixth of seven seals. So the seals are hold something shut, like a lock or like a password. A password is meant to seal and secure something so that not everybody can get into it, only the person with the password. And so in the book of Revelation, there's only one being who can open the seals, you know who that is? Revelation identifies that being as the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Only the Lamb can open these seals. And, and so that means only the Lamb has responsibility and authority and power over what's on the inside. And guess what's on the inside? Well, lots of stuff. Heaven and you and me are on the inside. So Jesus the Lamb is now opening the seal and what do we see inside? What's the content of this opened document? We see all believers, this is in the future now, all believers who will ever be in heaven, they're all there. We see all believers, okay? Now, there's a list of seven identifying factors as we look at these believers. And number seven is very interesting. It signifies salvation. So uh, pay attention here. You, you might want to write these down. These aren't in the notes. But I saw seven things as we're looking at this picture of all believers in heaven. Here we go. Number one, what caught my attention first is infinity. 
the infinite number of believers, right? The Bible says there's a great multitude, so huge, no one can count them. Number two, these believers all are different because of diversity. There's every nation, tribe, people, and language. And yet, even with all this diversity, that's number two. Number three, there's unity. Despite all the diversity, different skin colors, different cultures, different ages, different hairdos, di different shoes people are wearing. I don't, I don't know if you'll wear shoes in heaven, I'm thinking. All those differences, there's unity because we're unified by our faith in Jesus in the Lamb of God. Then number four, there's proximity to the throne of God. Right? All believers were standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. That, if it, if it happened right now, would zap all of us instantly. We would burn to a crisp. You cannot be that close to God and live, God says. But God allows for us to stand in this holy, heavenly ground in eternity, allows us as sinners to be there because he's forgiven our sins and we're perfect and holy forever. So, there's proximity to God, and we're still alive. Now we celebrate with festivity. That's number five. Festivity that knows no end. And we're wearing white robes, it says. White robes of, number six, purity. Perfection. Sinlessness. And that belongs to God, and he's given it to us. And so we're celebrating eternal, number seven, victory. We're waving, it says, holding palm branches in their hands, right? Palm branches were used to celebrate victories, as were evergreen wreaths, actually, in, at least in the Roman Empire. But palm branches were waved like they did when Jesus on Palm Sunday were waved to indicate victory. So there you go. There's what the crowd looks like. And, and guess what? We're there. That great multitude, no one, can count, no one can count wearing white robes. We're perfect. We're standing before the throne. We're rejoicing eternally. We're cheering. You and I are there. But, but look, you see not just us. You see that neighbor that you invited to church seven times and didn't accept once. And you prayed for them. And they watched you and observed you and they were in your home and they saw your Christian art and they heard you talk about your faith during struggles and God used it as a seed to sow in their heart and they're there. And the family member that you thought was a black sheep had run from the faith, didn't go to church the rest of their life, but you kept them in your prayers and you forwarded video sermons or email devotions and you kept them in your prayers and kept them in your prayers and kept feeding them the word. They're there because of your witness. And Martin Luther is there and we're all giving him high fives and we're walking around like we own the place, but we don't really own the place, but we're there because God owns the place and he invites us in. That's heaven's people and we're in heaven because heaven belongs to God. So, so we looked at the group, now let's listen to the group. When we listen to the group, we see heaven's praises belong to God. Right? Here's what we're saying. We're, we're praising God. Listen to us. We're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
like that's news. God knows that. I mean, we're all in heaven. The reason that we're in heaven is because we know and believe that. So why do we have to say it? Why, why are we so celebratory about saying something that's old news? Old news does not gain attention. New news, now that gains attention, right? Flashy news. This, this is old news, but it's, it's so true and, and so real and such a big part of us, our heart and our faith in eternity, that we just have to say it. Kind of like when your team wins a big game and you have to jump up and cheer and, yay, they victory, right? Why, why do that? You know they won. See, you can't help it. It just gushes out of you. And so it just gushes out of us when we're in heaven. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. God, salvation belongs to our God. That's what we cheer. What does the word salvation mean? It's one of those big, long shun words. Justification, sanctification, reconciliation, appropriation. Shun words. They tell us at seminary, don't use the shun words, but, you know, get down to people's level. But I think we need to understand the shun words. So, uh, salvation. What does it mean? It, its root meaning, actually, is deliverance. So, we talk about salvation belonging to God, that God has saved us. He's delivered us. He's He's rescued us from what? More than anything, I'd say this. From ourselves. There's the devil, there's the world, there's my sinful flesh. But by faith, I have power over all of that. If not for faith, I'm my own worst enemy. And so salvation, God rescues us. He rescues us from our fears and our anxieties. He rescues us from purposelessness in life, from confusion, from mistakes, from from bad behavior, from sin, from guilt. Salvation, we say, we're saved, and that belongs to our God. If I were to ask you, can you be absolutely sure that you will be in heaven someday? Right now, can you say, I am absolutely, 100% sure, I will be in heaven? Are you willing to say that? When I've said that to some people, they've said, you cannot say that as a Christian. And I say, they're wrong. With this understanding, I know I can't say that if, if I'm the only person in the room, but with God, all things are possible. With God and his promises, that's why we say salvation belongs to our God. If salvation was up to me, I don't know, I couldn't say that. I'd be maybe 30% sure, probably not even that much. But if salvation belongs to God and God says, I'm giving it to you as a gift, then we can be absolutely certain that we will be in heaven someday. Salvation belongs to our God. Here's what, what's one word in, a, in the church we use for certainty? Amen. Sermon's not over. I just said that word. It says it twice here in verse 12. Amen means this is most certainly true. 
Amen means, the, the root word of amen is truth or be, belief, belief in truth. It's like saying, yes, that's amen. So here's verse 12. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. There's no doubt in those words. There's no drifting. There's no disagreeing with God. Yeah, we do those things even today. But in heaven, that's not going to happen. There's only a loud, certain, sure, amen. So all the doubting, all the drifting that, that we do on earth, all the disagreeing, all the decision-making, that if Jesus were by our side, he'd shake his head and, ah, there you go again. All of that in heaven doesn't belong to us anymore. As a matter of fact, it doesn't belong to us now. It's gone. It belongs to God. God took care of it on the cross by his grace and mercy and we're completely forgiven. Our sins have nothing to do with us now. They're gone. We just think that they do and they trouble us and they shouldn't. They're gone. And they have nothing to do with us in heaven. They belong to God and God took care of it. Salvation belongs to God. All right, thirdly, Heaven's people belong to God. Heaven's praises belong to God. Heaven's prerequisites belong to God. All right, you ever get caught up in those what will heaven be like questions? Right, you have friends, they, they know you're Christian, and so they ask you things like, will my pets be in heaven? Will my favorite pair of colored socks be in heaven? What it, I heard one person ask this. This is the funniest one yet. If... If I die in my sleep and go to heaven, is it possible that I'll have bed hair for eternity? I, I, maybe. I, I don't have, the Bible doesn't give us certain answers to those what will heaven be like questions, but here's the good news. The Bible, the Bible gives us strong, secure answers for the most important questions about heaven. And here are some of the most important questions about heaven. How can I be there if I'm not good enough? How can I be absolutely confident that I'll be there when I don't believe my faith is as strong as it should be? How can I know that Jesus will welcome me there if I've embarrassed him so many times? How will I know that I'll be in the faith when I die? Those are better questions than questions about cats and colored socks being in heaven. I like those questions, cause, mostly because they have answers. There's no what ifs. Here's the answer, verses 13 and 14. These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? That's one of the elders asking John in his vision, and then the elder answers his own question. He says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, heaven's prerequisites belong to God. What it takes to get in. Okay, what do I have to do to get in? Be good enough? Have a faith that's strong enough? Be sure? What heaven's prerequisites belong to God. And God says this, 
right? The white robes. We have these robes of purity that is provided by God. We have a pardon of our sins that's provided by God as a gift. Provided by God as a gift who sacrificed his own son in blood. And by the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice for our sins, we know that our sins are paid for and forgiven. And then that lamb became a lion as he rose from the dead and was raised by his father with all power and authority and shares that power with us too. We preached on that last Sunday. Right, so we have, we have pardon and peace. We have purity. We have power. Those are the prerequisites for heaven and they're all given to us as a gift by God. And then we get there. And this will be true. It will be perfect. Right? These are they who have washed their robes. They've come out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation is right now. That means troubles. We're, this world is a lot of troubles, and we experience troubles. It's not a perfect world. We have a perfect Savior with a perfect word, but not a perfect world. That we will be pulled out of that world someday, and in heaven, it will be perfect. No more, no more pain, no more crying, right? Heaven will be, will be perfect. I'm not going to do it now, but you can take... Look at these words from Revelation. In the last three verses, there's a description of heaven. That, that you will not be scorched by any heat. The sun will not harm you. That, right? God will wipe tears. In that section, in the last three verses, there's ten statements describing heaven. Remember, we talked about this last Sunday. You know what the number ten signifies? Completeness or perfection. So this is, this is like... Revelation poetry here. Look for them there. The last three verses, find them. There's 10 statements that describe the perfection of heaven to let, to let us know. It, it, it just, it, when you get a 10 for a score, right, that's perfect. It can't get any better. The joy in heaven will not be ever able to be any better. It will be perfect. The peace in heaven will be a peace that cannot get any better. It'll be perfect. The companionship with Jesus, with Christians, the worship, the praise, the fulfillment, the purpose, the eternity, it cannot get any better and we will be there because heaven belongs to God. I'm going to close with a quiz. These items here, you've been wondering what they're here for, um, and so I want to show them to you and then ask you a question. I'm going to ask you the question and then show them to you. Here's the question. Which of these belongs here in this, in this worship service, in this building today? Which of these belongs? A carton of gluten-free oatmeal? A hand vacuum, dustbuster? A baseball glove? The Hebrew Old Testament. I have a favorite, but I'm not going to let you know which one it is here. All right. Which of those does not belong? Trick question. None of them belong. None of them belong. The Hebrew Bible maybe is the closest, but it's in Hebrew. You're not going to, we don't, it's, not, it's in Hebrew. We don't speak Hebrew. And none of the others belong here. And this, see, they, they shouldn't be here. But they're here. You know why? Because it's my sermon. And I can bring him, bring him into the sermon if I want to. And I did. So there. 
So they're here. They don't have a right to be here. They don't belong here, but they're here because it's my sermon and I say they belong. You and I, on our own, do not belong in heaven, but heaven belongs to God, and God gives us this gift and this promise, and he gives us Christmas trees which point to that promise and say, you belong in heaven because heaven belongs to me. So look at Christmas trees this Christmas season. See them everywhere. See them in Target. See them in Costco. See them at the mall. See them in the, the, the city squares. See them in your home. And rejoice. Rejoice that Christmas trees point to heaven. Their evergreen nature promises everlasting life. And they remind us of Jesus, the light of the world, who died on a tree so that we could live. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, good and gracious God, for this scene and revelation that you've uh, communicated to us today and, and opened it up, allowing your son Jesus to open the seal of this vision so that we can see and find ourselves in there. We thank you and praise you for the glory of heaven that will be ours someday. Help us with eyes of faith to, to look at it more intensely and to believe with more faith of what will be there someday and to anticipate it. And as we do for that, to guide us on a path in this life that is sure and secure and sins less. Prepare us through these words this Advent season as we look forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior and King. We thank you that Christmas trees point the way Reserve a place for us there, as we know you do, and help us live this life and finish this life in faith as we anticipate spending eternity in heaven with you and all believers. In Jesus' name, amen.